Warning, binge mode contains adult content. Oh, yeah, it does. Grasp my hands. Let Ice Lee be our bonder. (laughs) And I vow that this podcast contains adult content. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why the elf-made wine is the one to try tonight, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. The Prime Minister gazed hopelessly at the pair of them for a moment. Then the words he had fought to suppress all evening burst from him at last. But for heaven's sake, you're wizards. You can do magic. Surely you can sort out, well, anything. Scrimgeour turned slowly on the spot and exchanged an incredulous look with Fudge, who really did manage a smile this time as he said kindly, Trouble is, the sun can do magic too, Prime Minister. Welcome to Binge Run Harry Potter. Yeah. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Great website. So good. It's great. Joining me today. Hello. Now that he's finished finding safe homes for all the animals near Spinner's End. A lot of fox corpses. Please protect the foxes. It's ice. Drum roll, please. Perhaps the sound of Don Draper <laughs> sipping some whiskey. Ringer, senior creative. And your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Hello. Fancy promotion, buddy. Congrats. Thank you, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Mal, it's just a fox. I thought it could have been an aura. You never know. You have to make sure. Just kill everything in case. Good news for animals and horrors alike. It's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're offering the Prime Minister his own whiskey in his own office. <laughs> Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, and, also, grasp my hand and make the unbreakable vow that you will rate and review as five <laughs> points, five stars for Binge Mode. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, folks, at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore mash that follow button, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to share pictures of the dirty old oil paintings that you just cannot remove from the walls. What's Stubborn. The, what is the deal? How many janitors do I have to fire? Uh, how about the poor exchequer? <laughs> Can anybody get this thing off the wall? Jesus. Do we have to destroy the building? I feel like Cram would have figured it out. Just right? saying. So far. On Binge Mode Harry Potter, we've explored the first five books and movies, plus various other aspects of the Harry Potter universe. And on today's episode, we're exploring the first two chapters of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, a perfect book, and also the sixth book in this beloved saga. Wow. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter Yeah! <laughs> Taking the entire series into mm. account from the moment Narcissa and Bellatrix come a-calling. Ladies. <laughs> so get on your knees. Jesus. <laughs> Christ. 
That was quick. We did say a dog contact. <laughs> Put out your hand. <laughs> because it's time to make the unbreakable binge. Mel, is a man alive if he can't be killed? I had to think about that one for a second. Are plot points alive if we do not run through them? Let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Prince Chapters 1 and 2. Just 1 and 2. But, oh, man, are they dense. Just 1 and 2, but this will not be a shorter podcast (laughs) than usual. (laughs) By climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts Express! When the wizarding world sneezes, the muggle world catches cold. Is that why I get so many colds all the time? <laughs> it might be. The wizards to blame? It might be. The Prime Minister of Muggles is in his office one evening contemplating his recent political travails stemming from a string of bizarre calamities and crimes when one of his paintings speaks to him. Boy. Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, what do you think, would like a word. Corn steps out of the Prime Minister's fireplace and he comes bearing alarming news. Yes. Hey, you know that bridge collapse, that strange hurricane, that underling who's lost his marbles, those double murders? All the work of Voldemort and his followers, the Death Eaters. In fact, things are so bad, Fudge tells his counterpart, that uh, he's no longer Minister of Magic. Tough stuff. About fucking time. (laughs) Really? (laughs) A little late, but better late than never. He's been sacked. And in his place, Rufus Scrimgeour has risen to the post of Minister of Magic. He is a noted hard-ass or and he'll be here in just one minute. Ah, uh, here he is. Out of the fire, he steps the new minister, and he is very concerned about the Muggle Prime Minister's security. So concerned, in fact, that he's placed our good friend, Kingsley Shacklebolt, the bolt. in the Prime Minister's office. Meanwhile, in another part of the country, in a gritty, fox-strewn part of town. It's very tough. Poor fucking fox. <laughs> it's tough. What did that fox do? Narcissa Malfoy and Bellatrix Lestrange pay Severus Snape a visit in his home. Narcissa is in desperate need of Snape's help, but Bellatrix doesn't trust the potion master, and they argue, running through a laundry list of Snape's deeds to determine his true allegiance. Finally, Narcissa begs Snape to swear under the unbreakable vow to aid her son Draco in the hazardous task that Lord Voldemort has given him as punishment for his father Lucius's failure in the Department of Mysteries at the end of Order of the Phoenix. Jason? Yes? For heaven's sake, we're podcasters! We can record episodes! Surely we can sort out, well, anything. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme in chapters one and two of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is perspective. Ah, Chapter one, the other minister. JK is really good. It's and she so good. <laughs> and she uses these two chapters to really, really flex on her craft and how good she has become at it. The opening chapters of the Harry Potter books, as we have talked about before, fulfill a specific structural role in each and every story. As the entry point for readers, new and returning, they shoulder an outsized portion of the expositional catch-up, right? Even veterans of the books who waited two years, only two years, George R.R. R. Martin, are you listening? Who waited, you are, guy. <laughs> who waited two years between the publication of Order and the arrival of Prince could use a rundown of the tale's big beats. 
And it's a measure of rolling skill and creativity that here in book six, six books into the series, she manages to give readers the information that they need in a manner that feels totally fresh if you're a veteran of this story and just grabs you by the lapels. The way she does this is by altering the perspective, the narrative distance. J.K.R.'s opening chapters often explore the ways the wizarding world and the muggle world interact and the way one caught in the muggle world would or would not have access to information about the happenings in the wizarding world. Usually, though, not always, but for the most part, Harry is our lens. And his summer break travails at Privet Drive are, to extend the metaphor to its breaking point, the light. But Harry is nowhere to be found in the first two chapters of this book. And this immediately grabs your attention as a reader. We've spent five books getting closer to Harry so that by the end of order, we're fully inside of his head. We're experiencing things as he experiences them from inside of that. That's part of the reason that book is so uncomfortable to people because you're just grabbing a hold of his emotions and his thoughts like they're live wires. And now he's gone. And that is notable. We have always seen the Wizarding World through Harry's eyes. Always, from the beginning. That's how we entered it. But that relationship became more fully realized with each page as Harry better understood what he was seeing and feeling by very definition of our relationship with him and with the story through his eyes, so did we. So on the heels of the heartache he experiences at the end of Order, it is really stunning to not immediately return to his life, to his burdens, to his pain. But it's brilliant, too. A strategic widening of the scope, a shocking but crucial reminder that while Harry is at the center of the story and this world and our hearts, he is not the only person suffering. Half-Blood Prince opens not from the Chosen One's perspective, but from the Prime Minister Mm -hmm. of Great Britain's. We find the Prime Minister, a newcomer to our story, lost in thought, awaiting a call from the president of a faraway land. It's been an extremely trying week for the world leader. A freak hurricane struck the West Country. A bridge collapse killed untold numbers of people. Two grisly homicides have shaken the country. And one of his junior ministers, the homie Herbert Chorley, Very tough times for him. Acting very strange indeed. A lot of quacking. And worst of all, from his perspective, one of the prime minister's political opponents is hanging all these events around his neck. Quote, a grim mood has gripped the country, the opponent had concluded, barely concealing his own broad grin. Even the weather seems to have turned against the prime minister. Quote, all this chilly mist in the middle of July, it wasn't right, it wasn't normal. Ah, Those three words, it wasn't normal. That language echoes what we so often hear from the Dursleys, particularly back in the opening of Sorcerer's Stone, our first exposure to them and to the idea of this other world. That callback to Vernon and Petunia's perspective nudges us to stand back and really consider the way that the stakes have increased from a kind of intangible oddity that might disturb a quotidian suburban existence to an abnormality that threatens existence writ large. The minister doesn't yet know that wizards are behind these ills, but he can sense something amiss, something apart from the norm. And as he and readers alike will see in mere pages, this isn't just a disruption to the everyday routine. It's a risk to the very fabric of society. The Dursleys are focused on protecting their carefully manicured existence, the prime minister on protecting his people, and, of course, his political reputation and prospects. Their perspectives are radically different, but they're both touched by magic, even though they don't want to be. 
The minister's dire ruminations are interrupted when, alone, he thinks, in his office, he hears an unfortunately too familiar cough coming. Dolores? (laughs) Cough coming, he knows, from the small frog-like man in the dirty oil painting of indeterminate age hanging on his wall. To the Prime Minister of Melgles, urgent we meet, kindly respond immediately, sincerely fudge. The Prime Minister attempts, weakly, must be said, to beg off. He is, after all, waiting on a call from another nation's president. Not to worry, says the painting. We shall arrange for the president to forget to call. He will telephone tomorrow night instead, said the little man. Kindly respond immediately to Mr. Fudge. It's a testament to the richness of JKR's creation that, as we begin, again, the sixth book of the series, we're still finding out here that there's so much to explore. How often do wizarding world leaders interact with muggle world leaders? Right. Does this happen in other countries? That's immediately, first time I read this, I was like, oh, wow. I wonder what this is like in other parts of the world. Yes. How many other events in the history of the world have been secretly influenced by the affairs of the wizarding world? And does one of the most powerful leaders of the world really have to arrange his night at the whims of fucking corn fucking fudge? (laughs) We know that corn is a hack who couldn't hack it, but right away we see unambiguously he, or at least his station, has total power, Mm -hmm. total power over the prime minister. And that forces us to reconsider the ministry's standing and reach. This first interaction opens up a whole horizon of unexplored possibilities, all of them fascinating. The fireplace bursts with flame and Cornelius Fudge, the ex-minister of magic, as we will soon discover, emerges, brushing the ash off his coat. The Muggle prime minister, meanwhile, tries not to betray his mounting alarm about what he is seeing. <laughs> ah, Prime Minister, said Cornelius Fudge, striding forward with his hand outstretched. Good to see you again. The Prime Minister could not honestly return this compliment, so said nothing at all. Fudge's appearances are unsettling to the Prime Minister by their very nature. Mm-hmm. But what's more, they usually mean he's about to hear something really bad. <laughs> yes. And he can tell right away that that is going to be the case this time because Corn looks fucking rough <laughs> from the book. Fudge was looking distinctly careworn. He was thinner, balder, and grayer, and his face had a crumpled look. The prime minister had seen that kind of look at politician before, and it never boded well. No, sir, it does not. Oh, God. We know, of course, that Fudge has been having a extremely tough go. It's been rough. (laughs) Very tough go. It's been rougher, my guy, Court Fudge. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking understatement. And it has been, of course, in many ways— Self-inflicted, the product of his government's disgracefully cavalier approach to readying for the always very possible return of Voldemort. Look, like, no shots at our guy Hagrid, but if he knew that Voldemort was destined to return, fucking Fudge should have known. Just saying. And of course, also from Fudge's outright refusal to accept for a year. That's tough. A year that the Dark Lord had in fact risen again. But notice how this first interaction with Fudge in Half-Blood Prince opens up in unexpected ways because of a mere change in perspective. We are seeing Fudge through the eyes of a peer, not a teenager, not someone who encounters him regularly, who has consistently witnessed his failures. We notice how tired he looks, how he's lost weight, how he has noticeably aged. We notice, in other words, the toll the recent events and Fudge's culpability for them based on his office, have taken on him. The Muggle prime minister is able to draw conclusions from these observations to, albeit not initially, but eventually, empathize with Fudge in ways that Harry, by the very nature of his outlook, the very nature of his experiences, the very nature of his priorities, Mm -hmm. never could. 
Of course, the Muggle Prime Minister isn't initially empathetic. He is pretty annoyed at having to pretend to care about Fudge's bad business when he is dealing with so much of his own. And then he is downright furious when he finds out that Fudge and Fudge's world are the cause of his terrible week. So they chit-chat a bit, and Fudge hints <laughs> in infuriating fashion that the Wizarding World, yes, is the source of the recent upheavals shaking Britain, and that surely the Prime Minister should have realized this by now. The Prime Minister who, quote, did not appreciate being made to feel like an ignorant schoolboy thinks back to the first time Fudge appeared to him. From the book, he'd been standing alone in this very office, savoring the triumph that was his after so many years of dreaming and scheming, when he had heard a cough behind him, just like tonight turned to find that ugly little portrait talking to him, announcing that the Minister of Magic was about to arrive and introduce himself. The Prime Minister thought, okay, it's been a long campaign. I am worn out. I'm wrung out. Uh I'm imagining things. Sorry, no. Shortly thereafter, here comes Fudge bounding out of that fireplace to explain that, yes, magic is real. Wizards and witches exist. And listen, don't you worry your little muggle head about it (laughs) because from the book, It's odds on you'll never see me again. I'll only bother you if there's something really serious going on on our end. Something that's likely to affect the muggles, the non-magical population, I should say. Otherwise, it's live and let live. Hey, great. (laughs) Nothing to worry about. Prime Minister, shocked though he was and quite eager to hear that this might all be a prank, apparently took the news a fair bit better than his predecessor, who, according to Fudge, was insistent that this whole thing was a hoax perpetrated on him by his political opponents, and the poor guy even tried to hurl fudge out the window. The Minister of Magic only reveals him or herself, we learn, to the Prime Minister of the day, the better to maintain that statute of secrecy. Why hasn't a former Prime Minister warned me, the Prime Minister asks, that this fudge had actually left. My dear Prime Minister, are you ever going to tell anybody? Consider this. The people in power are supposed to have our trust, but many of us, and certainly many in rolling stories, are suspicious of authority. Does a moment like this meant to paint the person in power as totally out of control, even in his own sphere of influence, endear that person to us as a more relatable figure, also unsure, also full of doubt? Or does it cause our already fragile trust to crumble further? Think of someone like Vernon and how he reacted to learning that the magical community had a government. People like you in government? Oh, this explains everything. Everything. No wonder the country's going to the dogs. What would someone like Vernon think if he knew that the magical government not only existed, but reduced his muggle government, forward-facing, nominally a world power, to breathless questions and desperate hopes to feeling in his own office like, quote, an ignorant schoolboy? After their first meeting, the prime minister told himself once again, that this strange encounter was in fact a hallucination brought on by the stress of an arduous campaign and set about having that awful little painting removed from his office. Which, due to the permanent sticking charm applied to it, turned out to be impossible. And Sirius's mom would be proud. Yeah. Then, three years before our story's present day, the portrait again declared the corn fudge wanted a chat. This time, the Minister of Magic, quote, burst out of the fireplace, sopping wet and in a state of considerable panic. Before the prime minister could ask why he was dripping all over the axe minster, <laughs> Fudge started ranting about a prison the prime minister had never heard of, a man named, quote, Sirius, spelled S-E-R-I-O-U-S, black, phenomenal touch, something that sounded like Hogwarts and a boy called Harry Potter, none of which made the remotest sense to the prime minister. Now, again, this is... A brilliant narrative choice, pulling the reader, 
who has just spent five books embedded in Harry's heart and mind, and of course has just spent weeks, months, years, depending on each individual reader's personal experience with the story and when they came to it, mourning Sirius's death. Our journey, like Harry's, has been about gaining more knowledge, more insight, more exposure. The Lost Prophecy, the penultimate chapter in Order of the Phoenix, gave readers and Harry more information than ever before. Though, of course, still not all of it. <laughs> not Looking all of at it. you, Albus. It's tough. And here we're thrown back to the days when everything was a mystery. Mm-hmm. When the idea of a wizarding school and a magical prison and a boy whose name everyone knows seemed like an impossible dream. Reminding us of what that felt like helps us understand how far we've really come. But also how many other people have been or will be exposed to this and impacted by what transpires between Harry and Voldemort. I've just come from Azkaban, Fudget panted, tipping a large amount of water out of the rim of his bowler hat into his pocket. Middle of the North Sea, you know, nasty flight. The Dementors are in an uproar, shuddered. They never had a breakout before. Anyway, I come to you, Prime Minister. Black's a known muggle killer and maybe planning to rejoin you-know-who, but of course you don't even know who you-know-who is. Oh. Which requires some further examination. We've spoken yes. often how the wizarding establishment failed, took its foot off the gas, shots to my girl Alice, <laughs> in the wake of the first wizarding war, failing to prepare itself or its people for the ever-present threat of Voldemort's return. Where were the efforts to learn from what had happened and thus to ensure that those things couldn't happen again? What more proof could we need that Fudge and his colleagues were not properly on guard than to see that he never even told the Muggle Prime Minister about the greatest threat of all that was out there somewhere, as Hagrid would say, biding his time? Uh Here, Fudge, over the course of an hour, and while offering the Prime Minister his own whiskey, (laughs) his own whiskey from his own office, explains to the best of his ability who Voldemort is and why he feels that this is a big deal, but not like a super big deal. It's like kind of an issue, but like don't worry that much about it. The Muggle Prime Minister has to look down at the paper on which Corn Fudge has scribbled Voldemort's name to ask a follow-up. Again, truly incredible to contemplate he doesn't know the name of the most evil wizard who's ever lived. Quote, you think... You must not be named as still alive, then? Well, Dumbledore says he is, said Fudge, as he had fastened his pinstripe cloak under his chin. This is really fascinating to parse. The Fudge who allowed Dolores Umbridge to install a reign of terror at Hogwarts, who promulgated the Daily Prophet into vilifying Harry in Order of the Phoenix, the Fudge who looked... Dumbledore in the eyes and Goblet mm-hmm. of Fire and refused to listen to sense. Seems eons removed from this man who, while not exactly convinced or in command, at least doesn't seem allergic to the truth. Right. It's an important reminder of how much can change and how quickly, especially when something threatens one's comfortable existence. Fudge continues, quote, but we've never found him. If you ask me, he's not dangerous unless he's got support. So it's black we ought to be worrying about. You'll put out the warning then? Excellent. Well, (laughs) I hope we don't see each other again, Prime Minister. Good night. This is yet another example of Fudge's woeful failure. Voldemort. Fucking Voldemort? Yeah. Isn't dangerous on his own? It is important 
as Harry moves forward in his journey in the coming chapters and interacts with new figures in the ministry and confronts new relationships with power to remember this moment and how complicit the nominal, quote, good guys can be when they refuse to make the difficult choice. It is an example of what Dumbledore told the assembled in the Great Hall after Cedric's death. Fudge was never able to choose right over easy, and the costs were dire. To the prime minister, of course, this is a word salad with none of that context or clarity. He has no frame of reference to understand what he's just heard or the dire consequences that attitude will have, will bring in the future. But he knows enough to be alarmed by the Minister of Magic's presence in his office, despite assurances that they would hey, likely no, meet again. Don't worry about it. Never going to see me again. Ever. Yeah, let's, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> and the clear fact that Corn Fudge, an immensely powerful person, his failings aside, an immensely powerful yes. person who leads a population of godlike beings, is scared. Corn is shook. That would make you shit your pants. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, the, here's but, the, Corn can vanish it for you. <laughs> <laughs> and what's more, Corn is becoming something of a regular guest in the prime minister's office. Less than a year after Black's escape, Fudge returned to share the news that Death Eaters had struck the Quidditch, which the prime minister's like, the what? So good. World Cup. <laughs> You know, only the premier sporting event in the wizarding world. No big deal, guys. Several of Vic the Dick? Yeah, Vic the Dick. He's basically our LeBron. Several <laughs> muggles. The campground manager, Mr. Roberts, and his wife and children were, quote, involved. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, Fudge insisted from the book. The fact that you know whose mock had been seen again meant nothing. Fudge! <laughs> this, even for Fudge, is a wild characterization. Wild! This is a freak thing, a one-off, an isolated incident. And anyway, the Ministry is currently at work wiping Mr. Roberts' memory. With, it must be said, appalling effects to Mr. Roberts' mental Appalling. Yes. Appalling. Oh, and by the way, from the book again, we're importing three foreign dragons and a sphinx for the Triwizard Tournament. Quite routine, but the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures tells me that it's down in the rule book that we have to notify you if we're bringing highly dangerous creatures into the country. The Prime Minister of Britain is one of the most powerful leaders in the world, right? And he's helpless against the whims of the wizarding world. An adult, a true dolt, <laughs> like Corn Fudge. Yes, the ministry has to inform the Muggle government when they import dragons and such into the country. But if the Muggles have any objections, that's just simply too bad. Too bad. Then, nearly two years later, Corn Fudge came calling once more. Damn it. Bringing news of a mass breakout from Azkaban. Quote, a mass breakout, repeated the prime minister hoarsely. No need to worry, no need to worry, shouted Fudge. (laughs) (laughs) Already with one foot in the flames, we'll have them rounded up in no time. Just thought you ought to know. And then he was gone again. Rowling is bringing all her gifts to bear here. If... By any chance, Half-Blood Prince I mean, there must have been some people. Introduction to Harry Potter. Not possible, right? It's a full-throttled phenomenon at this point. You don't want to miss out. Maybe you dive right in. This is a punchy primer on the essential plot points delivered in a way that lays bare the stakes of the story and makes you desperate to want to catch up, go back to the beginning, experience it all. Of course, if you're familiar with the story, the bulk of the readers out there probably, 
Even if you'd spent the full two years waiting between books five and six, rereading time and time again, parsing every word, considering every theory, even then, this shifted your perspective. This information download for a man without access to the daily happenings in the wizarding world, it shrinks the distance between the events. It creates a tremendous feeling of momentum and suspense. It's a mere fraction of what we've experienced alongside Harry through five books. But it's some of the worst of it. The horrors that filtered even beyond Hogwarts's super safe, seriously, no safer place, walls. And this is not lost on the prime minister. Quote, whatever the press and the opposition might say, the prime minister was not a foolish man. It had not escaped his notice that despite Fudge's assurances at their first meeting, they were now seeing rather a lot of each other. Nor that Fudge was becoming more flustered with each visit. Concerning. (laughs) Little though he liked to think about the Minister of Magic, or as he always called Fudge in his head, the other minister, the Prime Minister could not help but fear that the next time Fudge appeared, it would be with graver news still. Another note here on JKR's death touch on one part of that prior line. Quote, or as he always called Fudge in his head, the other minister. This is a wonderful microcosm of what we're talking about here, of how the reader's vantage point can shift in an instant. When we first see the chapter title, The Other Minister, and begin to read about the British Prime Minister, we believe, naturally, that he is the other in question. It is a small but fascinating thing to consider, then, that from the muggle boss's perspective, Fudge is the other. Mm -hmm. Fantasy literature is so often about the others. Those who feel different or apart for any number of reasons. A line like this reminds us to consider that difference is a matter of perspective and that we cannot always know how others think and feel. The British Prime Minister's feeling on one thing is clear. He was worried that Fudge's next appearance would bring dire news. And he was right. Ding, ding, ding. When Fudge returns, now back in the present day, he reveals that those deadly calamities currently befalling the country are... Voldemort's doing from the book. Prime Minister, I am very sorry to have to tell you that he's back. He who must not be named is back. And the Prime Minister is shook. The dude Fudge was so afraid of that he couldn't even say his name and spend an hour trying to explain who he was without saying the name. The one Fudge told the muggle leader, uh, don't worry about, he's alive? Yes, alive, said Fudge. That is, I don't know, is a man alive if he can't be killed? I don't really understand it. And Dumbledore won't explain it properly. But anyway... He certainly got a body and is walking and talking and killing, so I suppose. For the purposes of our discussion, yes, he's alive. Couple things here. Yes. Number one, <laughs> an iconic but subtle Dumbledunk that reminds us Amazing. that Harry is far from the only one who can't always get the full truth from Dumbledore. Amazing. Of course it's hard to pity Fudge given his prolonged failure to engage with the truth Dumbledore was offering. And two, great Horcrux foreshadowing at play in Fudge's language. And while he, of course does not know about them, nor should he be expected to, given the supreme achievement of Dumbledore's discovery. It's worth noting yet again that Fudge, leader of the Wizarding World, ex-leader, doesn't have a fucking clue what's going on at all. And only the most pressing matter facing his people. (laughs) It's fucking tough stuff. He's contented to chalk Voldemort up to a boogeyman without making any effort to understand the source of his power or even the very reality of his existence. He's essentially as uninformed as the man whom he's ostensibly informing. Uh A truly reprehensible state of affairs that boils down to egregious government malpractice. 
And what has sprung up in the vacuum of real leadership? Chaos and terror. When the prime minister asks whether this is all about serious black again, serious, S-E-R-I-O-U-S, Fudge has to come clean. Black, black, said Fudge distractedly, turning his boulder rapidly in his fingers. Serious black, you mean? Merlin's beard, no. Black's dead. Turns out we were, er, mistaken about black. He was innocent after all, and he wasn't in league with he who must not be named either. I mean, he added defensively, spinning the bowler hat still faster. All the evidence pointed. We had more than 50 eyewitnesses. But anyway, as I say, he's dead. Murdered, as a matter of fact, on Ministry of Magic premises. There's going to be an inquiry, actually. Now, (laughs) the Muggle Prime Minister finds himself feeling, quote, to his great surprise, pity for Fudge in this moment. Yet another reminder of how much point of view determines. So true. For us, for readers, for Harry, losing Sirius is a weight that we will carry forever. A hole that nothing and no one can fill. For the two ministers having this exchange, his death matters only in terms of how it impacts their careers. It's a form of political capital. Fudge spells it out. He says, Black's by the by now. The point is we're at war. To which his muggle counterpart says, surely that's a little bit of an overstatement. It is, of course, not. And it's instructive to think about how this statement is simultaneously shocking and totally logical. It's logical because why would the muggle prime minister know any differently? He doesn't even know how to spell Quidditch. Why would he know the status of this conflict that is only recently flared into public view? On the other, it's shocking to consider how every muggle knows so little about the forces that shape their world. Remember back in Goblet, when we spoke about the importance of trying as weird as it might be to consider things from the Dursley's point of view, Mm -hmm. to ask what it would feel like, even as a disgraceful person who neglected nephew and belittled a way of life, to see godlike beings enter your home, destroy it, (laughs) and impose their will upon you. Now apply that logic to muggles en masse. Things are happening all around them, crumbling all around them. People are dying. Untold numbers of people died when that bridge collapsed. Mm -hmm. We don't know how many people. All because of the Wizarding War, and they don't have a say. They don't have any way to defend themselves, to object. They don't even know that it's happening or why it's happening. Mr. Pro Dursley takes. (laughs) I'm pro-muggle. That's all. We should make merch, you know, the... Blank and blank and blank, but it's like all the asshole villains that you ride for. I Vernon and Rita. And- well, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's a, it's a testament to Rowling's ability to create fleshed out characters that they have a point sometimes. Yeah. They oh. really like even the assholes have a point, as we're about to see in the second. Again. As we're about to yeah. see in the second chapter of this episode. Indeed, that's right. Bella would be the next name on your list. No. <laughs> Fudge begins to explain. Those who broke out of Azkaban have rejoined Voldemort. The Brockdale Bridge, that was his doing. A threat followed through on. The prime minister thinks, quote, it was infuriating to discover the reason for all these terrible disasters and not be able to tell the public. Almost worse than it being the government's fault after all. A human impulse to think that way maybe, but also a sick one. You know, what really matters? What's happening or how it impacts his career? Fudge continues. The hurricane wasn't really a hurricane. It was the doing of Death Eaters and, Fudge suspects, giants. 
Obliviators are modifying the memories of muggles who saw what really occurred. Again, these people have no say in what's happened to them. It's fucking great. In what's going to happen to their minds and how they get to move forward with their lives. We revisit this theme often because it is crucial to never lose sight of what power can do and of how power shifts with perspective. Even, again, the quote-unquote good guys make choices that they maybe shouldn't get to make. Is it ever okay to act like a god to decide what memories somebody else can hold? Is protecting your secrecy really worth someone else's not only peace of mind, but actual mind? Oh, and then there are those murders. Mm-hmm. Amelia Bones, the witch at Harry's trial, whom they suspect Voldemort murdered personally. Badge of honor. The muggles have been stumped by this crime. She was found in a room locked from the inside. Even though the situations aren't identical, this recalls the befuddlement that swept over the Muggle police in Hangleton after they found the bodies, apparently healthy and unharmed, apart from being dead, in the Riddle home. How many Muggles or magical beings have met fates like this, only to be discovered without any clarity, without any truth, without any closure for their loved ones, a life ending in a question mark because of shrouds and secrets. And then there is Emily and Vance, member of the Order of the Phoenix, a murder so gruesome and so close to Downing Street, we presume. That muggles feel that law and order is breaking down right in the prime minister's backyard. And that's not all. Dementors, the guards of Azkaban, are roaming the land in swarms, attacking people, and fucking out in the open, guys. It's disgusting. (laughs) From the book, once upon a happier time, this sentence would have been unintelligible to the prime minister. But he was wiser now. Much like Petunia, Dementors seem to have left an impression on this muggle. Fudge, in a moment that would be truly LOL funny if not for the horror of him acting stunned about something Dumbledore warned him time and time and again would happen, says, I won't pretend that wasn't a blow. Oh, you think? Fucking corn? All the dementors of Azkaban leaving their post and roaming the countryside? Extremely tough look for your guy. But, said the prime minister with a sense of dawning horror, didn't you tell me the, the creatures that drain hope and happiness out of people? That's right. And they're breeding. That's what's causing all this mist. Guys, <laughs> the landscape is enshrouded in dementor sex funk. <laughs> for God's, that's how bad it is. You're walking around in dementor jism. This is bad. Not great. It's not great. Naturally, <laughs> the prime minister, after taking a handkerchief and wiping out the inside of his mouth and nostrils, <laughs> is worried about the impact on voters. But this is, for him and anyone, also an existential threat. The very air is ready to rob you of your joy and coach you in sex juice from a dementor. (laughs) How can anyone hope to cope with that? And Fudge is all but admitting that the ministry's power cannot resist Voldemort, to say nothing of actually stopping him from the book. Now see here, Fudge, you've got to do something. It's your responsibility as Minister of Magic, my dear Prime Minister. I can't honestly think I'm still Minister of Magic after all this. I was sacked three days ago. That's an incredible moment. Yeah. The Prime Minister feels again, sorry for Fudge, who no matter how different he may be, no matter how badly he might make the Prime Minister feel about himself, is a peer. A peer who has failed in a way that the Prime Minister now fears he might. Mm-hmm. They're speaking across what seems an unbridgeable divide, but they're strangely united in this way. Fudge muttering resentment at the toad man in the portrait regarding Dumbledore's refusal to budge regarding a coded statement that clearly has something to do with Harry, vouching for the ministry, as we'll soon learn, is just here to catch the prime minister up on the goings-on, the ins and outs, all that stuff. 
and to introduce him to the new Minister of Magic. Is that Rufus Scrimgeour's music? (laughs) Prime Minister thinks that Scrimgeour looked, quote, rather like an old lion. He has gray in his mane, a limp when he walks. Quote, there was an immediate impression of shrewdness and toughness. The Prime Minister thought he understood why the wizarding community preferred Scrimgeour to Fudge as a leader in these dangerous times. Again, the Prime Minister's read as a fellow leader, a peer, allows us to perceive the new minister in a way that's quite distinct from what Harry's point of view here would be. The Prime Minister recognizes in Scrimgeour qualities which communities that are threatened value in a leader. Seriousness, directness, clear-minded decisiveness. Comforting qualities and certainly refreshing ones compared to the bumbling fudge. Scrimgeour has no time for chit-chat. After a quick handshake, he takes out his wand and locks the door and closes the blinds. This is a notable moment. Basic precautions that, in this instant, strike the reader as astounding that Fudge didn't think to perform. Fudge is lax. Not a thorough dude. Not careful. Flat out not up to the job. Scrimgeour, he's another matter. And after batting away the prime minister's objection to the locked door, he sparks this truly iconic exchange. Yes. I'm a busy man. So let's get down to business. First of all, we need to discuss your security. Oh, God. The prime minister drew himself up to his fullest height and replied, I am perfectly happy with the security I've already got. Thank you very... Well, we're not. (laughs) Scrimgeour cut in. It'll be a poor lookout for the muggles if the prime minister gets put under the imperious curse. The new secretary in your outer office. I'm not getting rid of Kingsley Shacklebolt, if that's what you're suggesting, said the prime minister hotly. He's highly efficient, gets through twice the work the rest of them. That's because he's a wizard. <laughs> Specifically, an or whose job is to protect the prime minister from Death Eater skullduggery. The prime minister briefly objects to this clear and unwelcome tampering with the sanctity of his office. Scrimgeour shuts him down. I thought you were happy, Shucklebolt. <laughs> Sorry to all the Scottish people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get a little taste of your Irish? <laughs> <laughs> Said Scrimgeour coldly. I am. That's to say, I was. And there's no problem, is there? Now, this isn't the same, oh, by the way, you're getting the Sphinx casual superiority that Fudge brought. This is a determined dominance. Yeah. A no holds barred declaration that Scrimgeour intends to set the rules. We come to understand that the prime minister's security is of pointed concern because Voldemort's minions have already attacked his government directly. This is alarming shit Mm -hmm. from the book. Now, about Herbert Trolley, your junior minister, he continued, the one who's been entertaining the public by impersonating a duck. What about him? Asked the prime minister. He's clearly reacted to a poorly performed imperious curse, said Scrimgeour. It's out of his brains. But he could still be dangerous. <laughs> Scrim tells the prime minister that he's going to have to hold on to Chorley, you know, just for a little while, indefinitely, maybe for like an open-ended amount of time that could be forever, who's already tried to strangle three St. Mungo's healers, you know, so it's serious. From the book again, I, well, he'll be all right, won't he? Said the prime minister anxiously. Scrimgeour merely shrugged. Already moving back toward the fireplace. We don't know Scrimgeour. We don't know his morals, his ethics. We don't know what's in his heart. 
But we see here a man who is, by his demeanor, uh-huh. no stranger to the costs of war. He's moving quickly and at a pace, and he does not have time for any of this. He's trying to put out fires. So the prime minister, Chorley, is a colleague, perhaps a friend, someone he knows, someone he cares about, someone whose life is meaning to scrimgeour, hey, we're taking care of it, and that's all I can do right now. He shrugs, he moves on. Just one more problem to deal with before facing the next. And then the one after that in war and life, the things that happen to those we love change our lives forever. But to someone else, to someone like Scrimgeour, who's a leader, who's in power, these people are often tragically nameless and faceless. Obstacles to simply walk past. Scrimgeour moves to make his leave, noting that Fudge is staying on as an advisor, functionally as a go-between. Guess Fudge couldn't get any other work. Messenger guy. Do you even trust him with that? Like, I'm sorry, but I feel like no. we can get someone else. Like, what should Fudge <laughs> be doing right now? Like, I don't know. Go dragon dog. Just literally go retire. Go anywhere. Real retire, bitch. Yeah, <laughs> for Corn Fucking please retire, bitch. <laughs> Scrimgeour clearly won't have time for visits. Going forward, he has real business to attend to. And as he moves to use his flu powder, the prime minister finally gives in to his panic, voicing the words that have been gnawing away at him all night. And indeed, probably since the very first time that Fudge brought a word of the Wizarding World's problems to his mantle. This sequence is incredible. Quote, But for heaven's sake, you're wizards. You can do magic. Surely you can sort out, well, anything. The passage continues. Scrimgeour turned slowly on the spot and exchanged an incredulous look with Fudge, who really did manage a smile this time as he said kindly, The trouble is, the other side can do magic too, Prime Minister. Now, this is an iconic line in the series, an iconic moment, not only because it is so perfectly crafted, such a crisp and stirring conclusion to the chapter, but because it crystallizes in a way that really few other things ever have the burden at play to a muggle like the Prime Minister. It's inconceivable that someone with the ability to turn his teacup into a gerbil wouldn't be able to do literally anything to solve any problem. In many ways, in addition to their persecution, this is one of the primary reasons the wizards have remained in hiding. Muggles would, they think, undoubtedly want them to solve all of their problems. But the people on the other side of the battle lines have wands in their hands, too. And crucially, in this case, malice in their hearts. Mm It's not magicians versus mortals. It's gods, titans, battling on the mountaintop. And it is another bit of crucial perspective, another one of the most important reminders fantasy stories can give us. Magic is a beautiful gift, a desperate dream, but it is not a cure-all. Our lives are still our lives. Our choices are still our choices. And our fights are still our fights. And now a brief break for a word from our sponsor. Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Experience the fun and excitement of Universal's Islands of Adventure, Universal Studios Florida, and Universal's Volcano Bay. There's a Universal hotel for every style and budget. Yes. And now there's a brand new hotel that puts you right in the heart of the action. Universal's Aventura Hotel is sleek and stylish with commanding views of all three theme parks from its very own rooftop bar. Plus, when you stay at one of Universal Orlando's hotels every morning, 
you could breeze into one of three amazing theme parks via water taxi or shuttle an hour before other guests. As the sun sets on days filled with thrills, the night awakens with a frightening chill at Universal Studios. Florida, now through November 3rd, Halloween Horror Nights brings together stories and visions of the most notorious creators of horror. Takes them to the next level. This year, time twists and turns on itself. Ripping cinematic greats, cult classics, and even original nightmares from decades past into a new era of fear with more terrifying haunted houses than ever. But no matter what time of year you visit Universal Orlando Resort, you'll find exciting events to make your vacation more epic. Believe it. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Yeah. And now back to binge mode. Chapter 2, Spinner's End. From the highest offices of government, both muggle and wizarding, Rowling takes us to the trash-strewn banks of a polluted stretch of river in the dead of night. Two figures apparate into the darkness. One of them, noticing movement along the riverbank, fires off a killing curse, then realizes it was just a fox. There's no time for making sure, no time for seeing if a perceived threat is real. It's kill or be killed out here. No worry over collateral damage or mistakes. There's only action with this person. And this is Bellatrix Lestrange, murderer of Sirius Black, and she's following her sister, Narcissa Malfoy. Recall the mirror images here from the beginning of Stone when Minerva Megalion is lurking on the street in her cat form. Here we get a little mirror image of that, only it's just an animal. And the other side, knowing what wizards are capable of, just immediately is shooting to kill. I thought perhaps in horror. Yeah. There are very few chapters or sections of chapters, which we don't experience through Harry's perspective. The boy who lived from Stone is told from what we call an omniscient perspective, which is like a godlike view that usually attaches itself to a single character through a stretch of pages or perhaps a whole chapter. Quidditch, also from Stone, shades towards Hermione's perspective because Harry is, of course, riding his broom. Recall, we need to know that Hermione goes and sets Snape's robe on fire. And from Stone again, Nicholas Flamel, Neville and Ron fight Draco and his goons. The Riddle House, Goblet, begins omniscient, then shades over to Frank the Gardener's POV. So we experience the horror of that shrunken Voldemort from Frank's uncomprehending perspective. And then there's the first two chapters of Half-Blood Prince and the first chapter in Hallows where we get to attend the Death Eater meetup at the Mouthboys. When the story widens and we leave Harry's side, it can only be because what we're being shown is incredibly important. Yes. In this chapter, we get a look behind the masks of the Death Eaters from the book. Sissy, Narcissa, listen to me. The second woman caught up with the first and seized her arm, but the other wrenched it away. Go back, Bella. You must listen to me. I listened already. I've made my decision. Leave me alone. The woman named Narcissa gained the top of the bank where the line of old railings separated the river from a narrow cobbled street. The other woman, Bella, followed at once. Side by side, they stood looking across the road at the rows and rows of dilapidated brick houses, their windows dull and blind in the darkness. The woman named Narcissa, the other woman, Bella, we already know who these people are, right? Mm-hmm. So why does JK write it this way? Because she wants to reinforce the feeling that we're voyeurs here. We shouldn't be seeing this. Read the beginning of that chapter again. We're there on the riverbank before they arrive, just mm-hmm. hanging out. And then they come. What's this strange thing that's happening? And then we kind of follow along, sneaking 
this information, spying on them, really, it's a wonderful technique and a wonderful effect. And it really shows you how good rolling is to really understand how to use that narrative distance. Bella pursues Narcissa through dank cobblestone streets, past tumble-down row houses. They're arguing when they arrive at a particularly dilapidated stretch of houses. He lives here, asks Bella in a voice of contempt. Here, in this muggle dunghill, we must be the first of our kind to ever set foot. The he in question here, we will soon discover, is Severus Snape. And it seems the potion master's life as a member of the Death Eaters is full of the same suspicions as his life in the Order. Mm-hmm. This is important for readers, particularly readers who've spent so much time in Harry's mind and thus exposed to Harry's prejudice against Snape to consider. You do not have to believe that Snape is a good person. You do not have to feel that way. To acknowledge that he faced a near impossible task, having to convince everyone in his life of his loyalty, even though that meant convincing different people of different things depending on the needs of the moment. What perspective do each of those camps have? How does Snape maintain any of his own while navigating that? As we'll see over the course of this chapter, the discipline required here is supreme. And again, no matter your personal feelings towards Snape, remarkable. Quote, Sissy, you must not do this. You can't trust him. The Dark Lord trusts him, doesn't he? The Dark Lord is, I believe, mistaken, Bella panted. She always pants when she's talking about Voldemort. Yeah, she does. It's that emoji with the tongue hanging out. (laughs) Right away. With this one line, we are reoriented completely. Bellatrix loves Voldemort. Like, literally is in love with Voldemort. That dick got her crazy. (laughs) We'll become, we'll learn in Cursed Child, his baby mama. (laughs) In other words, she will milk the snake. She is so committed to Voldemort that she was one of the followers who continued to fight for him and search for him even after his downfall. Going to Azkaban rather than pretending that she'd been hoodwinked in some way. She went into the Department of Mysteries for him, into the Ministry of Magic. She shrieked in inhuman ways when Harry dared to speak his name. And yet, so strong, so strong is her mistrust of Snape that she's willing to speak out against her lord and lover. It is a shocking and immensely potent way of clarifying for us how some of Voldemort's other followers, particularly those like Bella who want the honor of being his most trusted advisor, feel about Snape and thus the enormity of the task he's facing in trying to sell both sides on his sincerity. Belichick tries to stop Narcissa by noting that they were told to speak of this mysterious matter to no one. Narcissa's current course is a betrayal, essentially, of that order, and thus of the Dark Lord. But Narcissa doesn't care. She's frantic, so determined to proceed that she uses magic against her own sister to free herself from Bellatrix's grasp. This matters because it clarifies the stakes from Narcissa's perspective. She's so afraid, so desperate to stop whatever is happening, as we'll soon learn, the Dark Lord has ordered Draco to kill Dumbledore, that she's more driven by that than by her fear of Voldemort or her love of her sister. This is the kind of occurrence that warps one's priorities. This is the kind of thing that gets people killed. From the book, there is nothing I wouldn't do anymore, she shrieks as she curses Bella and runs ahead through the maze of brick row houses to a street named Spinner's End. From the book again, over which the towering mill chimney seemed to hover like a giant 
admonitory finger. Admonitory, a warning, a cautious judge. Spinner's End, such a perfect name for the street on which someone spinning all these tales would live. Narcissa reaches the door first and knocks before Bellatrix can stop her. Snape answers, claiming, hey, what a pleasant surprise. Listen, maybe our guy loves to entertain. You never know. He's just in there keeping fucking worm tail in a <laughs> fucking mine shaft. <laughs> we get our first look at Snape's living arrangements. And again, matter of perspective, if you really, really love books, which I do, maybe this seems cozy. Uh, it's, a bachelor, it's a it's, bachelor pad. Might seem a little grim. Quote, yeah. they had stepped directly into a tiny sitting room, which had the feeling of a dark padded cell. That's grim. Padded cell is grim. This part's nice. The walls were completely covered in books, most of them bound in old black or brown leather. A threadbare sofa, an old armchair, and a rickety table stood grouped together in a pool of dim light cast by a candle-filled lamp hung from the ceiling. The place had an air of neglect, as though it was not usually inhabited. This is a real fish-out-of-water moment for us with Snape, even though we're seeing him in his home. For us, we're seeing him out of the element that we are used to. It's a chance to see him as Harry can't, as Harry never has. In other words, outside of either Hogwarts or Order of the Phoenix headquarters. And he's in a place that in many ways reflects his own internal state. At this point in the story, we don't yet know Snape's true allegiance. We can't yet know what it costs him to be back in his childhood home, in the place where he met and fell in love with Lily Evans. But even absent that knowledge, seeing him in this space unlocks something for us. The, quote, air of neglect isn't specific to that room. It also describes the man who, we will come to learn in time, has lived a life defined by loss and regret. From the book, so what can I do for you? Snape asks, settling into the armchair opposite the two sisters. We, we are alone, aren't we? Narcissa asks quietly. Yes, of course. Well, Wormtail's here, but we're not counting vermin, are we? But um bump <laughs> Narcissa's question, we are alone aren't we? Again, there's Rowling bolstering that feeling that we, the reader, are trespassing here, seeing and hearing things that we shouldn't be seeing and hearing. Because, of course, they are not alone, right? We're here with them. Things the people in this room don't even want Voldemort to know about, those are the things that we are hearing and seeing. It's also worth thinking about the way this chapter pits Snape and Pettigrew against each other, with Snape yes. labeling Wormtail vermin and constantly shitting on him. <laughs> this guy gave his fucking hand to get Voldemort back to life, and everybody's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> oh, it's great. When Wormtail protests that he's not there to act as Snape's servant, Snape's like, really? <laughs> From the book, really? I was under the impression that the Dark Lord placed you here to assist me. Mm-hmm. We know that Voldemort treats Pettigrew like shit and won't hesitate to humiliate him. Does it all the time, in fact. But actually putting him in Snape's service still shows that Voldemort cares about what Snape's doing, either because he wants to give Snape help and resources or because he wants to spy on him or both. Snape doesn't hesitate to dunk on his helper. From the book, I had no idea, Wormtail, that you were craving more dangerous assignments. We've seen Snape bully Harry and Hermione and Neville and countless other students, but we've never seen this. He is really that dick. That same belittling techniques, but he's using them now 
against fellow Death Eaters. In this case, not only a defense mechanism and his admittedly warped way of dealing with his own pain, but a tool to puff up his own importance in relation to another who could threaten his mission. Snape and Wormtail are different in many ways, but they have something fundamental in common. They're both spies, both betrayers, turncloaks, mistrusted because of past choices they made and allegiances they changed. Pettigrew forever lost the trust of those he betrayed. Snape has managed to maintain it, and after so much wondering on our own and through Harry's eyes, we're about to find out how. Snape and Pettigrew aren't the only ones in the house with tension. Bellatrix loathes Snape, and he, in turn, seems openly (laughs) amused by her suspicion, a stance which is worth reading into. Bellatrix is unhinged, a dangerous maniac who murders and tortures at will. She was willing to annihilate children who stood in her way at the ministry. She interrogated Frank and Alice Longbottom into madness. And Snape, faced with her derision, can't help but smile. There's a confidence on display here that, like every other line and mannerism and choice in this chapter, plays perfectly, no matter which theory you wind up believing, after the events on the astronomy tower. We know, of course, which side Bellatrix is on. She does not trust our greasy-haired guy. And she is not afraid to say so. When Snape asks why Bellatrix doesn't trust him, the audience is put in maybe its most surprising position yet with Bellatrix, fucking Bellatrix Lestrange, acting as our avatar, asking the questions that so many people had longed to ask for so much time. Quote, where to start? (laughs) Where were you when the Dark Lord fell? Why did you never make any attempt to find him when he vanished? What have you been doing all these years that you've lived in Dumbledore's pocket? Why did you stop the Dark Lord procuring the Sorcerer's Stone? Why did you not return at once when the Dark Lord was reborn? Where were you a few weeks ago when we battled to retrieve the prophecy for the Dark Lord? And why, Snape, is Harry Potter still alive when you have had him at your mercy for five years? Good questions. Really good ones. (laughs) The particular questions about Snape differ from party to party, but the unifying theme is that everyone has them. Yes. Everyone is concerned about Snape. Harry views Snape with intense distrust, and Ron and Hermione also have at times. Harry has wondered aloud several times whether Snape was working against him, even as in stone, wondering if he was trying to kill him. In order, Ron theorized that rather than helping Harry learn to close his mind against Voldemort, Snape might be helping the Dark Lord to exploit it. Harry has wondered, even after witnessing Snape declare in front of Dumbledore and the Minister of Magic that Voldemort was back, even after hearing Dumbledore's defenses in The Lost Prophecy, how it is that Dumbledore could possibly trust Snape, what he'd done to earn that. Mm -hmm. These questions from Bella, meanwhile, remind us that those same events from the different perspective cast doubt on Snape's reliability, but in the opposite direction. Right. He's having to fend these charges off from all sides. Bella, of course— hits on something pretty close to the truth with her inquiries, though we won't know it for some time still. When Bellatrix lays it all out, it does seem like Snape is working for Dumbledore and against Voldemort, right? Mm-hmm. It does. Yep. And of course he is. Yep. But Snape has the perfect defense ready to parry these allegations against him. No matter the perspective they come from, Harry and the Orders are Bellatrix and the Death Eaters. As Hermione often points out to Harry and Ron, 
as Dumbledore himself often reinforces to Harry, Dumbledore trusts Snape. And when Snape answers Bella, he uses, in essence, that same defense. The boss believes me. It's hard to argue with that one. (laughs) Quote, Do you really think that the Dark Lord has not asked me each and every one of those questions? And do you really think that, had I not been able to give satisfactory answers, I would be sitting here talking to you? It's a good point! It's a great point. (laughs) She hesitated. I know he believes you, but you think he is mistaken? Or that I have somehow hoodwinked him? Fooled the Dark Lord, the greatest wizard, the most accomplished legilimens the world has ever seen? And again, to be fair, it is a great fucking point, no matter what side you're on. Surely, Dumbledore must know what's going on, one side would think. Surely! The Dark Lord, with all his powers and his willingness, even eagerness to punish those who cross him, must have fully vetted Snape, must fully vet him every time he's with him. The other side would think. That's what makes this such an epic fucking flex by Snape, by the way. Because Voldemort and Dumbledore are actually as good as he says, and as everyone thinks, and yet he's fucking fooling someone. And it's just hard not to look back at the occlumency lessons and say, Harry, my guy. It's very tough. He had a lot to teach you. (laughs) He had a lot to teach you. Bellatrix, in response to this, quote, looked for the first time a little discomfited. On both sides of this battle line, the most effective trump card to silence the doubters is, boss man says it's okay. Yep. Dumbledore and Voldemort are revered, have the near unimpeachable trust of their followers, which, listen, can be a dangerous mistake for those people. But, In a moment like this, or a similar moment in which someone needs to convince an order member of Snape's intentions, can be a tool that Snape or someone else can use to make the case. This is also another reminder of how rare Harry is. You know, we're not talking much about Harry because, again, these chapters are a rarity. They're not from his perspective. But let's think about him here. He is one of the few who doubts and questions despite Mm-hmm. having trust in Dumbledore. He pushes and prods. He insists on trying to unearth the truth. And sometimes that gets him into trouble. But oftentimes, it is his differentiating strength. When Snape continues, he makes it clear for us, the readers, that either Dumbledore or Voldemort has gravely erred. Yes. You ask where I was when the Dark Lord fell I was where he ordered me to be at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry because he wished me to spy upon Albus Dumbledore. You know, I presume, that it was on the Dark Lord's orders that I took up the post. We know in the light of the ultimate reveal that it is the Dark Lord who's been taken in by Snape, who is acting on Dumbledore's orders. We learn, too, that this is not the reason that Snape wound up at Hogwarts, that he was driven into Dumbledore's service only after he realized what passing along the partial prophecy report might cost. But every jagged piece of the Snape puzzle plays both ways, fitting perfectly into whichever jigsaw of truth the person on the receiving end of the manipulation wants or needs or has the context to believe. Yes. As to why Snape didn't attempt to find Voldemort after he disappeared, Quote, for the same reason that Avery Yaxley, the Caro's grayback Lucius, he inclined his head slightly to Narcissa. (laughs) It's kind of hard to argue with this one. (laughs) Pretty good. And many others did not attempt to find him. I believed him finished. Okay. As to why he stayed at Hogwarts, the ministry was hunting down Death Eaters. And hey, 
paycheck's a paycheck. <laughs> Even if Dumbledore's signing it. And hey, what's more, Dumbledore's protection kept Snape out of jail, as he's happy to admit. Snape has an answer for everything. Remember, whichever way Snape's storyline ultimately played out, it meant that he had deceived either Voldemort or Dumbledore. We cannot reinforce this point enough. That's right. Masterful wizards both. Wrapping someone like Bellatrix around his lies is child's play compared to that. When Snape tore into Harry during occlumency lessons about the concentration and discipline required to master oneself and the cost of failing to do so, he spoke from this firsthand experience. And here we are seeing him put that ability to work or seeing him speak truly. That possibility was also in play, meaning that his interactions on the order side are when he's putting the skills to work. Either way, any outcome, it would have been awe-inspiring. He even uses Dumbledore's refusal to give him the Defense Against the Dark Arts post as proof that Dumbledore never really trusted him. Quote, seemed to think it might uh, bring about a relapse. We will see over the remainder of the series that Dumbledore, who knows that Voldemort has cursed the Defense Against the Dark Arts position, only put Snape into that job when he knew that his own time and thus Snape's time under his charge at the school were coming to an end. But while this doesn't exactly convince Bellatrix here, quote, this was your sacrifice for the Dark Lord, not to teach your favorite subject. <laughs> Incredible. It still cast doubt on Snape from Dumbledore's perspective, an important and effective seed to plant with someone like Bellatrix. Positioning Dumbledore as a pawn that Snape used to remain out of Azkaban and in comfortable society similarly penetrates even a begrudging party. These people want to beat Dumbledore. They want to believe him fallible. The idea that Snape might have been beating him for 16 years is pretty perversely satisfying for a Death Eater to consider. And as Snape notes, Voldemort might have a laundry list of complaints, but he certainly hasn't been complaining about the decade and a half's worth of intel that Snape has been able to share. Quote, I repeat, the Dark Lord does not complain that I stayed, so I do not see why you do. And the rundown continues. Why didn't you help with the Sorcerer's Stone? He says, the Dark Lord from the book thought like you that I had turned from faithful Death Eater to Dumbledore Stooge. He was in a pitiable condition, very weak, sharing the body of a mediocre wizard. What a fucking shot at quarrel. <laughs> he did not dare reveal himself to a former ally if that ally might turn him over to Dumbledore or the Ministry. This passes relatively quickly in the question and answer rundown, but this is one that Snape had to answer because it wasn't just the absence of an effort to go find Voldemort, but an active attempt to thwart him from getting something he wanted. It's one of the main feathers in a Snape defender's cap and crucially one of the absolute bits of proof we have that Harry has been wrong to doubt Snape. If we're robbed of that, where are we left? Right. Hoping that Snape's tricking someone else instead of us. Next, one of the biggest of all, an exchange that led readers everywhere to parse every word in what transpired here and every word of what transpired in the hospital wing in Goblet in Parting of the Ways. Why didn't Snape return to the fold immediately when the reborn Voldemort activated the dark mark in the little Hangleton graveyard? Snape says, I returned two hours later. I returned on Dumbledore's orders. And Bella's like, aha! aha, aha I gotcha! Mm -hmm. But Snape is ready. Think! 
by waiting two hours, just two hours, I ensured that I could remain at Hogwarts as a spy by allowing Dumbledore to think that I was only returning to the Dark Lord's side because I was ordered to. I have been able to pass information on Dumbledore and the Order of the Phoenix ever since. Now recall, the moment that passed between Dumbledore and Snape and Goblet as Harry sat as witness. Yes. Severus, said Dumbledore, turning to Snape, you know what I must ask you to do if you're ready, if you're prepared. I am, said Snape. He looked slightly paler than usual and his cold black eyes glittered strangely. This is a masterclass in plotting. Every word in every scene perfectly tailored to either eventual outcome. It's almost like a baseball argument. Depending on your perspective, depending on what case you want to make, you can reverse engineer the stat that will suit your argument and you can make it work. Rowling has made it to be so, but in the end, with full clarity at last, there's no holes, no seams, no flaws in the logic. No flexes removes from Snape that undercut the final reveal. It all holds a house of cards built on love and legitimacy strong enough to make sure it never fell. Yes, Snape continues, tying one more bow on a question readers had wondered about since Voldemort's graveyard bars and goblet. The Dark Lord thought I had left him forever, but he was wrong. And when all of Snape's excuses fail to sway Bellatrix, he falls back upon his truest weapon, his sharpest dagger. His imperious sarcasm and snark. And, crucially, his ability to put those to use to pick away at the particular anxieties of his victim of the moment. To make a weapon, in other words, of the perspective he knows that person holds. After Bellatrix asks, quote, what useful information have we had from you? <laughs> Snape lands the kill shot. My information has been conveyed directly to the Dark Lord, said Snape. If he chooses not to share it with you, he shares everything with me, said Bellatrix, firing up at once. He calls me his most loyal, his most faithful. He calls me baby. He calls me boo. He asked me to milk a snake. Does he, said Snape, his voice delicately inflected to suggest his disbelief. Savage. Does he still? <laughs> After the fiasco at the ministry, Snape strikes a nerve. With this shiv. Bellatrix is, shall we say, sensitive to the perception that she might have failed her lord boyfriend. <laughs> that was not my fault, said Bellatrix, flushing. The Dark Lord has in the past entrusted me with his most precious if Lucius hadn't. Don't you dare. Don't you dare blame my husband, said Narcissa in a low and deadly voice, looking up at her sister. Bit by bit, Snape is succeeding in taking the focus off himself. He's found Bellatrix's weak spot and he's pressing it to his advantage. When Bellatrix asks Snape where he was during the Battle of the Ministry, he says that his orders were to remain behind. Quote, perhaps you disagree with the Dark Lord. Perhaps you think that Dumbledore would not have noticed if I had joined forces with the Death Eaters to fight the Order of the Phoenix. This is so funny. And this is brutal. <laughs> forgive me. You speak of dangers. <laughs> you were facing six teenagers, were you not? <laughs> <That's> fucking great. <laughs> Savage. The conversation goes back and forth like this, with Bellatrix bringing up inconsistencies and Snape dismissing them and insisting he's a loyal follower. When she asks, for example, why he can't reveal the location of Order Headquarters, he basically pulls a do-you-even-lift-bro. 
He's like, do you even magic, yeah. bro? I am not the secret keeper, he says. I cannot speak the name of the place. You understand how the enchantment That's works? Right. <laughs> you've been you've been a witch a while, correct? <laughs> Bellatrix thinks herself superior in every respect, and Snape makes her weak by making her feel foolish. All the while, as Snape and Bellatrix trade barbs, the reader's perspective remains the most challenged of all of them. Taking this in for the first time, which side did you come down on? It's a really incredible chapter because on the one hand, Bellatrix lays out all the reasons why you should believe Snape. And then what comes next with the unbreakable vow, I remember at the time being like, well, how does he get out of this one? What does this mean? I was always pro-Snape being on the side of light in the end. At the end of this chapter, it was hard to feel confident in it. very, very, He sells it so well. It's incredible. So taking this in for the first time, which side did you come down? Was Snape a double agent working for Dumbledore or a double agent working for Voldemort? How many times did you change your mind? Where were you before this conversation? Every step along the way, after it, after the tower, after Severus, please, after don't call me a coward. The wait between Prince and Hallows was filled with enough speculating and theorizing to sustain a fan community that seems like it will last forever. And many discussion points drove that fandom. Would Harry live or die? What were all the horcruxes really? Who would Hermione end up with in the end? But is Snape good or evil? Or the world isn't divided into good people and Death Eaters version of that binary. Dominated discussion as much as anything. This chapter, these exchanges were at the very center of that debate. Man, what a time to be alive. That was a special moment. It really was. Bellatrix returns to her last, but in many ways, most pressing point. What about Harry Potter, my guy? Why is that angsty little fuck still alive? That's a great question. Inquiring minds want to know. Have you discussed this matter with the Dark Lord? Asked Snape. He, lately, we... I'm asking you, Snape. That's right. It's fucking incredible. Whoops. <gasps> so Things this is not going great. <laughs> this is what it looks like to have a lover's quarrel with the dark fucking lord. All right, you know, they're sleeping in different bedrooms right now, so she's got to grill Snape instead. And he says, first, that Voldemort couldn't have used Harry's blood if Snape had killed Harry, which, while true, doesn't do a damn bit to assuage Bellatrix because, as she notes, Snape had no idea that that would one day be necessary. But this is actually a brilliant tactic by Snape appearing too squeaky clean would be really suspicious. Acting like he was out for his own self-interest? Well, that would actually seem honest and true. That's relatable. And thus can help him earn trust in the room. Quote, have you not understood me? It was only Dumbledore's protection that was keeping me out of Azkaban. (laughs) This is another amazing line. Do you disagree that murdering his favorite student might have turned him against me? Okay, good note, good note. But there's more. He's not done selling it yet. I was curious, I admit it. Curious, he goes on to clarify, about whether Harry might become a powerful dark lord in his own right. This is a masterclass in manipulation, in using someone else's perspective against them. Snape is using the heart of Voldemort's own fears, the weakness and paranoia that drove Voldemort to act on the part of the prophecy that he heard to keep Voldemort's followers at bay. The truth, of course, is that Snape devoted his entire life to avenging Lily's death by protecting her son. But the lie contains enough of the truth that Voldemort worried about to sell this to someone operating from a Death Eater's vantage point. 
And then at last we get to it. The question that Bellatrix and Harry alike would love to ask. How is it that Dumbledore trusts you, Snape? But of course he has an answer for that too. And it cuts. You overlook Dumbledore's greatest weakness. He has to believe the best of people. The most effective lies in this book and in life have a bit of truth to them. Recall what we'll learn in The Prince's Tale Dumbledore told Snape years ago when the regret-ravished boy pledged his allegiance to Dumbledore and Harry but insisted that their deal remain secret. My word, Severus, that I shall never reveal the best of you. Dumbledore's trust defined the rest of Snape's life. Dumbledore's trust and also his decision to withhold certain elemental information shape much of Harry's life. They share this, and yet they don't see it, their perspective clouded by their prejudices and their convictions. Truth ripping the scales from their eyes only from the grave. Snape notes that Dumbledore is growing old, has sustained a serious injury. This is an absolutely essential detail because it's a timestamp for us. It confirms that Dumbledore has already succumbed to what we will come to learn was the ring, and thus the resurrection stone's temptation, meaning he's already suffering from the Horcrux's lethal curse, which is to say, as we will see in full in Deathly Hallows, that he knew already he was on borrowed time, and that he and Snape could, in fact, would have to maneuver accordingly. They have already struck their bargain. This matters because it allows Snape to act like he's taking shots at the man he's duping. But really, it allows him to take the action that he's about to take, to commit himself fully to Narcissa, and thus, by extension, Voldemort, while really doing what he and Dumbledore had already agreed. Have Snape try to find out what Draco's up to, and then kill Dumbledore, who's dying anyway, in order to spare Draco from Voldemort's wrath and preserve, enhance, Snape's position with Voldemort. All of those reveals are coming. So Snape is ready for this moment as finally the interrogation winds down and he is able to ask Narcissa why she came. And she tells him she needs his help. With Lucius and Azkaban, she has nowhere else to turn. Help with what? The Dark Lord has forbidden me to speak of it, Narcissa continued, her eyes still closed. He wishes none to know of the plan. It is very secret, but... If he has forbidden it, you ought not to speak, said Snape at once. The Dark Lord's word is law. Bellatrix's suspicions, which, again, are a species of jealousy over Snape's relationship, growing ever closer with the Dark Lord, likely not quelled by this declaration. But it sure doesn't hurt, Snape in her eyes. There, she said triumphantly to her sister. Even Snape says so. You were told not to talk, so hold your silence. Ah, but not so fast. Snape's like, I already know what's up. Mm -hmm. You know about the plan, said Bellatrix, her fleeting expression of satisfaction replaced by a look of outrage. You know? Certainly, said Snape. Snape's been talking to your boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Quickly, we learn that the plan involves Draco, and Narcissa is distraught. My only son! And Bella's kind of into it, though. Draco should be proud, said Bellatrix indifferently. The Dark Lord is granting him a great honor. And I will say this for Draco, he isn't shrinking away from his duty. He seems glad of a chance to prove himself excited at the prospect. We'll see as the tears pour down Draco's face in the bathroom with Myrtle and as he actually finds himself atop the tower, how wrong she is about this. But Draco's tortured soul doesn't change the reality. It seems the Dark Lord has chosen Narcissa's son for a dangerous task as a way to punish Lucius for his failure to retrieve the prophecy. Snape doesn't deny it. 
If Draco succeeds, said Snape, still looking away from her, he will be honored above all others. Again, play to the room. That's what they all want. But it's not enough for Narcissa. It's not enough for a mother. As we'll see in Hallows, her love for her son actually does trump her desire to do Voldemort's bidding. And this scene foreshadows that brilliantly. The choice she'll make in the forest and Hallows when she lies about Harry being dead in order to make it back to the castle and toward her son. Snape is skirting the edge of disaster every moment. Every moment that he's with the Death Eaters. With his every word and deed. And he's been able to accomplish that thus far because he knows exactly how far he can push it in any given situation. Narcissa suggesting that he attempt to talk the Dark Lord out of this plan is not something that he can try. The Dark Lord will not be persuaded and I am not stupid enough to attempt it, said Snape flatly. I cannot pretend that the Dark Lord is not angry with Lucius. Lucius was supposed to be in charge. He got himself captured along with how many others and failed to retrieve the prophecy into the bargain. Yes, the Dark Lord is angry, Narcissa, very angry indeed. Narcissa throws herself at Snape and begs. Again, the Dark Lord, as we discover toward the end of the book, wants Draco to assassinate Dumbledore, but we don't know that here. There's talk of a plan, and it's vague, vague coded language and unambiguous fear that alludes to something very large. And that allows us, the reader, armed with what we witness here, to know that Harry is right. And he spends all books suspecting Draco and trying and failing mm-hmm. to convince his friends that that little rack fuck was really up to something. The headmaster quite recently fought Voldemort himself uh-huh. to a standstill. I mean— He was kind of winning because it was like Voldemort could go all out, whereas Dumbledore is also trying to protect Harry. Uh Sending Draco, a 16-year-old kid, against Dumbledore is by any measure a suicide mission. No chance. Of course Narcissa is distraught, desperate to save her son, even without knowing the specifics in this chapter. We know that something grave is happening. Something grave is afoot. Something that Voldemort does not believe that Draco can do. And J.K. is providing us with a devastating bit of perspective, which is the mark of a great storyteller. She's successfully humanizing her villains. Yes. Even Death Eaters, who should be in jail for life, (laughs) love their children. Yes. And Narcissa surrenders to despair. Then, Snape says, it might be possible for me to help Draco. Narcissa sits up. Severus, oh Severus, you would help him? Would you look after him? See, he comes to no harm? I can try. Narcissa grabs Snape's hand in hers and kisses it. And there's an intimacy on display here that conveys how earnest her desperation is. She asks Snape to swear it. She asks him to make the unbreakable vow. Quote, Snape's expression was blank, unreadable. Bellatrix, however, let out a cackle of triumphant laughter. Another one of J.K.'s masterful lines here that plays perfectly no matter which case you want to make, no matter which truth you want to believe. Bellatrix, triumphant, thinks she's about to see Slippery Snape find an excuse once again to slither away from any action which might harm Dumbledore or the Order. But she's wrong. Quote, Certainly, Narcissa, I shall make the unbreakable vow, he said quietly. Bella's mouth opens in shock as Snape kneels opposite Narcissa. Quote, Beneath Bellatrix's astonished gaze, they grasped right hands. Man, I remember so vividly, like, my heart 
pounding as I read this for the first time. He tells Bellatrix that she'll need her wand. He's driving this. He's directing it, sealing his fate, but also sealing his ruse. With Bellatrix as their bonder, Snape answers each of Narcissa's prompts in turn. Will you, Severus, watch over my son Draco as he attempts to fulfill the Dark Lord's wishes? I will, said Snape, and a thin cord of fire shoots from Bellatrix's wand, wraps itself around their entwined hands. And will you, to the best of your ability, protect him from harm? I will, said Snape, as another rope of flame joins the first. Here we go. Here's the hammer one. And should it prove necessary, if it seems Draco will fail, whispered Narcissa. Quote from the passage here, still continuing. Snape's hand twitched within hers, but he did not draw away. J.K. again drawing our attentions not only to speech, but to body language, to mannerisms, to the tells of what's really going on inside someone. Will you carry out the deed that the Dark Lord has ordered Draco to perform? There was a moment's silence. Bellatrix watched, her wand upon their clasped hands, her eyes wide. I will, said Snape. Bellatrix's astounded face glowed red in the blaze of a third tongue of flame. Why is she so astounded? As we will learn from Wan Wan, of all people. The unbreakable vow is named as such because breaking it leads to death. That's how binding this is. That's the magic at play here. Snape has just sworn his life over to Narcissa, and thus Voldemort. How can Bellatrix or anyone else doubt him now? It is utter commitment from their perspective, the kind of declaration that not even the most suspicious among them can doubt. And yet, it's one more fine, greasy hair splitting the truth, much like Snape's own name, Severus. Not the actual etymology of the name, of course, but you could read this as sever us, split us, divide us, pit us against each other. He sold Bellatrix here, but he signed himself over to what, as we will learn in Hallows, he and Dumbledore had already agreed to. Woo! Yeah. Jason? Yes. The whole Bingemo community has been screaming for our return for a fortnight. I've never known them so united in our whole term of office. So please tell them about another type of office. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section, maybe with some whiskey, to teach us what we need to know about the history of the minister's magic. The position of Minister for Magic was created in 1707 following the passage of the International Statute of Secrecy. Previously, Magical Britain had been ruled by more informal governing bodies like the Wizards Council, but more structure and organization were needed. Thus, the establishment of the Ministry of Magic and with it a person to lead the new government. Ministers of Magic are democratically elected, although they are occasionally given the position without a public vote in times of crisis. They have no fixed term limit, but are required to run for re-election at least once every seven years. And unlike with Muggle government leaders, they more often leave office for scandalous or tragic reasons than simply being voted out. As of the end of Deadly Hallows, we know of 33 ministers who left or were removed from office, counting both Corny Fudge and Rufus Scrimgeour, but not Pius Thickness, who, per a post on Pottermore, is generally omitted from the official records because he was under the imperious curse for the duration <laughs> of his time in office. Tough stuff <laughs> for Pius Thickness. <laughs> 
13 of those 33 left peacefully, though most of that group governed in the early 1800s in between periods of conflict in both the wizarding and muggle worlds. Of the remaining 20, two resigned because of illness. Nobby Leach, who governed in the mid-20th century and fell mysteriously ill, perhaps because he was the first Muggle-born minister, and Rodolphus Lestrange, note, not Rodolphus the cuck, but the same family <laughs> who found the office too stressful a century prior. Five more ministers died in office. Scrimgeour was killed by Voldemort. Wilhelmina Tuft didn't realize she was allergic to fudge until it was too late. Mm. Fudge the chocolate. Venusia Crickerly <laughs> suffered a terrible mandrake-based gardening accident. Don't even fuck around with the mandrakes, well, did guys. Did she not wear her earmuffs? It's just not worth it. Maximilian Crowdy, who prevented various pure-blood groups from carrying out attacks on muggles, died mysteriously soon after in a fashion that still perplexes wizarding historians to this day. And Eldritch Diggory, mm. we've talked about before on this pod because he instituted an horror training program and tried to reform Azkaban before succumbing to dragon pox. Tough, tough way to go. Stuff. <laughs> out of the 13 <laughs> remaining ministers, six, including Korn, resigned <laughs> due to mismanagement in times of turmoil. In the years before young Harry Potter stopped Voldemort in Godric's Hollow, the Dark Lord's reign forced both Eugenia Jenkins and Harold Mincham out of office. And a half a century earlier, Hector Fawley resigned in the face of public pressure after he proved unable to counter the growing Grindelwald threat in mm. the mid-18th century. Albert Boot, resigned amid a goblin rebellion, and his successor, Basil Flack, oversaw the shortest ever ministerial tenor as he lasted just two months ah. before the rebelling goblins united with the werewolves and he left office in disgrace. <laughs> Goodness. The other seven were forced to leave office because of the various eccentricities and people problems. Hortensia Millifoot, Priscilla Dupont, and Lorcan McLaird were forced out... <laughs> Basically because they annoyed other high-ranking ministry members like when Millifoot drafted so much pedantic legislation such as restricting the pointiness of witches' hats <laughs> that her peers booted her from office. I would like my hat pointy and sharp as I want it. Two of the earliest ministers, Damocles Roll and Perseus Parkinson, were removed because of overly harsh muggle rhetoric, <laughs> including an attempt to make it illegal to marry a muggle. Tough stuff. Several centuries later, Ignatius Tuft was voted out for proposing a controversial Dementor breeding program. Oh. Guys, they just breed anyway. Oh, my goodness. No need to do anything else. <laughs> they like to fuck. <laughs> and Farius Spout Hole Spaven, oh my who served 38 <laughs> years, was kindly asked to step aside when, at the age of 147, he made a fool of himself at Queen Victoria's funeral. Tough. Woof. Yo, my guy. What tough looks here? Jesus. <laughs> Relating to Fudge, there is one more minister worth specifically highlighting. Korn's predecessor was a witch named Millicent Bagnold, who took office a year before Voldemort's downfall and subsequently faced an irate group at the International Confederation of Wizards because of all the breaches of the Statute of Secrecy following the Dark Lord's disappearance. It turns out McGonagall's right. She usually is. She's never been wrong. She was right in the first chapter of Sorcerer's Stone when she fretted about all the commotion. But... Minister Bagnold didn't much care about the international angst at the time. Voldemort was gone, after all. Magical Britain was saved. She offered up a now-famous set of words in her country's defense. I assert our inalienable right to party. Wow. It's a fucking legend. legend. Everyone cheered and the party raged on. What an icon. Party on, Millicent. Millie Bags. <laughs> Millie, Millie Bags. Oh, that was... I must say, delightful, and further proof that history of magic is, if taught by a compelling 
professor would be engaging and delightful. Millie Bags sounds like <laughs> right up my alley. Right up there with your girl Mintumble. <laughs> Taya, Mintumble is good, but Millie Bags is better. Oh my God, Mintumble knocked off top peg. Yeah, Millie Bags is out here just being like, Writing a partying bill of rights. Listen, Eloise, you come see me now that Jason's done with you. Yes, where is she in time? No one knows. <laughs> <laughs> Jason? Yes. By listing seven nuggets, just seven nuggets, we ensured that we could remain on binge mode as hosts. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, mm. by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Half Blood Prince chapters one and two. Because seven remains. The most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one. Perpotamore, the man in the portrait who alerts the Muggle Prime Minister about the Minister of Magic's impending appearance, is Ulick Gamp. The first. The very first. (laughs) Minister of Magic. What a legacy for our guy, Ulick. Ulick? Ulick? Mr. Gamp? (laughs) Number two. While JKR has never confirmed that the Muggle Prime Minister is actually supposed to correspond to the British Prime Minister of the day, the real British Prime Minister of the day, it's reasonable to wonder. And in the event that that's the case, who would Fudge have been speaking to? John Major, who served as Britain's Prime Minister from 1990 to 1997 and was succeeded by Tony Blair. Who, in this, again, unproven scenario, in which the characters equate to real people, would then presumably have been one of the opponents who was campaigning against this chapter's protagonist. Number three. Bellatrix says that she and Narcissa are the, quote, first of our kind to set foot in Snape's neighborhood. Not too well actually heard, but actually several other witches and wizards have been there before. Snape lives in Cokeworth, where he, a wizard, and Lily, a witch, grew up, Uh along with everyone's favorite wannabe witch, Petunia. Snape's parents, the muggle Tobias Snape and the witch Eileen Prince, lived in the house Snape inhabits. In this chapter, Cokeworth was also, incidentally, where the Dursleys spent a night at the Railview Hotel when trying to evade Harry's letters way back in stone, meaning Harry, a wizard, set foot there, too. Check your facts, Bella. Can't believe Bella got it wrong. Who would have <laughs> fucking guessed? Number four. When Narcissa is begging Snape for help, repeating, my only son, my only son, Bella says, you should be proud. If I had sons, I would gladly give them up to the service of the Dark Lord. Well, Bella, you're not going to have a son, but you will have his daughter. Not canon. <laughs> Get ready. For Delphi and Cursed Child. Number five. One of Bellatrix's other boasts also contains ample foreshadowing. The Dark Lord has in the past entrusted me with his most precious. Yeah, like putting Hufflepuff's cup, a.k.a. one of his horcruxes, into your Gringotts vault, as we'll learn in Hallows. And how'd that go? (laughs) Not well. (laughs) Ride Gringotts Escape. At Universal Orlando Resorts to find out more. Just thinking about this, like, not only is Voldemort like, Rodolphus, I'm going to fuck your wife, but also I'm going to hide a part of my soul in your Gringotts vault. Yikes. I'm going to hide my snake in her cave also. (laughs) Number six. The line about Scrimgeour looking, quote, rather like an old lion may not seem like much now but it holds a position of paramount importance in the fandom. Why? 
Well, before Half-Blood Prince's publication, J.K.R. dropped a few clues about the book in the form of Easter eggs that you could find after solving puzzles on her personal website. You clicked on the pink eraser in her office, and then you went to a door with a do not disturb sign. And the sign vanished 10 times, revealing 10 clues. I have, again, such vivid memories of sitting at my desk in my college dorm just doing this rather than, like, you know, talking to people. And I was happy! (laughs) If you're interested in reading up on all 10, check out the Harry Potter lexicon, which has a rundown of all of the instances in detail. For our purposes here, the first door opening was from June 28th to July 2nd, 2004, and it revealed the title of the book. The second door opening and puzzle was from August 16th to 26th, 2004, and it revealed a line from the book. What we would come to realize eventually was this description of Scrimgeour, but didn't include his name. It had a he instead. And at the time, legions thought this must be a description of the Half-Blood Prince. Of course, why else would it be out there? How wrong we were. Number seven. Fun maybe fact. Rufus Scrimgeour may be related to Brutus Scrimgeour. Mm, love him. The author of the Beater's Bible and a blurb writer for Quidditch Through the Ages. This isn't confirmed canon, but it's surname speculation. It's, yeah, I mean, it's how many Scrimgeours are there? <laughs> Speaking of names, Rufus is Latin for red-haired, a fitting choice for a man first described to us as looking as just disgust, rather like an old lion. The Scottish surname Scrimgeour, meanwhile, means fencer or skirmisher and is derived from the German word skirmen, meaning to defend. So his name, in essence, means the red defender, not a bad ally for our Gryffindors after all. Love it. Rip to Scrimgeour. Love some etymology. Who doesn't make it? Tough look for my guy. <laughs> Great name, though. Mal, mm. do you disagree that murdering our favorite producer might have turned him against me? Yeah, I don't Let, think you'd be thrilled. Let's ask today's champion. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Severus Snape, guys. Wow. Killed it. Listen. It's first binge mode win. Kind of shocking that it's his first binge mode win, given how much time we devote to talking about Snape, but it is. And we're only talking about two chapters here. And he just dominates this stretch. He repeatedly dunks on Wormtail. Always good for a few points. Love it. He shows an unexpected appreciation for fine wine, which is, you know, listen, I like a winner with a refined palate. <laughs> Literally has walls of books, which we love, of course. Fabulous. Managed to run through years of, okay, but what about this? Yes. And he's like, yeah, I got that. Oh, that? Oh, you mean that also? Mm-hmm. Proving once again that he's one of Rowling's best written characters. and. One of the greatest literary tools. I mean, an incredible accomplishment with Saint. Really unbelievable. He convinces Narcissa and Bellatrix by making the unbreakable vow, which costs him, on the one hand, supreme emotional and moral agony. We do not want to discount that. But also, in some senses, nothing. Because by this point, he already knows that Dumbledore is on borrowed time. They have already struck an agreement. He secures their trust. He embeds himself further in Voldemort's camp. It's masterful in every respect. Snape for the win. All right, friends. Yes. Through all these episodes, you have never stopped trusting binge mode. And therein lies our great valued Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again tomorrow 
when we will be discussing Prince chapters three through seven. Slughorn time. I love my guy Sluggy. But in the meantime, bring us drinks. Some of the elf-made wine will do. Didn't you tell me they're the creatures that drain hope and happiness out of people? That's right. And they're breeding. Just causing all this mist. What? Yes, all the fog. That's from Dementors fucking. It causes a smoke. They emit a smoke. It's basically their sperm. <laughs> it comes out of them. And they do it so much, it causes a mist. actually causes weather patterns. Dear God. Sorry to tell you, man. It's awful. Anyway, gotta go. Uh, be sure to wear a rain jacket. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. <laughs> <laughs>